Good morning, my name is Jordan. If I haven't met you yet, I have the privilege of opening God's Word for us here in just a moment. Before we do, I want to ask our team that's leaving for um, Central Asia tomorrow to come on on stage. We're going to pray for us. Uh, I'm going to. So uh, each week before we preach, we take a moment to just invite the church into the ministry of the church uh, to make sure that we're not just talking about stuff. We would give you on-ramps and opportunities to participate. And so we have uh, five people that are participating by going to support some of our um, on-the-ground missionaries and serve their families uh, so that they can stay on the ground. And, and, um, and so we're headed halfway across the world um, tomorrow. Around this time, we'll be loading up and, and headed out. And so I want to just invite you guys to, to pray for, for this team and, and their families as they're left behind. I think I'm asking Josie to come up and, and lead us in that prayer. And so those of you that have been around a while, you know that we have partners there. Uh, and as specific as we can be is, is Central Asia, uh, you know, offline and, and Sunday night services. We talk a little bit more in depth about the O family and where they're specifically at. But those of you that know, know where we're headed. Um, and just so you know, as of now, everything is as stable as it usually is there on the ground, but it's obviously uh, some dynamic situations there uh, in that region. And so we are monitoring that and uh, you know, talking to them on the ground, and, and we're all a go, and, and there's no uh, reason at this time to, to see um, any heightened safety concerns for us. However, man, that for family and, and folks and some boarding the plane, that may, that may or may not mean uh, more or less. And so we invite your prayers, we covet those, um, and we invite you to pray with Josie as he just prays over us uh, now. So we'll be gone from tomorrow to the 24th, which I think is the next Wednesday. So appreciate y'all's prayers. All right, let's pray. Father, we just uh, we lift these people up to you. We lift up Jordan and Chad and Melise and Sarah and Mark as they embark on a trip across the world as they go to spread your word, to uh, meet people they don't know, to just be a Christ-like light shining. Lord, I know that's what we're called to do, and I pray as a church that we uh, support them, that we pray for them not only now but while they're gone. Until they return, I pray for their families that are here at home, that you give them a peace of uh, sense of comfort as they're gone, to know uh, that your hand of protection is over them. Lord, and I ask for uh, safe travels for them, and I just ask you to bless the ministry they're doing. Be over there. Be uh, the people that serve. May their ears be open to hear your word and to respond to it, Lord. We are proud and honored to send these group of people, and we just ask uh, your blessings over them as they travel. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take, uh, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4, it's where we're going to be momentarily, and, and as we do that, I want to take a couple moments to point out just the, the goodness of God that allows us to trust him in faith. So much of, in fact, all of following Jesus in this life is, is one of faith, and that means we don't always see what's ahead, we don't always see how things are going to pan out, but we can trust in our God, uh, and we do that in large part based on the testimony of who he's been in the past. And so uh, just even thinking as Josie was praying about the goodness of God and the clarity of God calling us to this place to be a part of the, the, the team that is reaching um, the people on the ground has been undeniable in our history of our church. Those of you that were here last time when we kind of reported on our trip in January, you know that God has, has very clearly uh, called our church to intersect with this team at this time, working with these people. And so, uh, I mean, I just take a lot of heart in that. And even this trip, uh, we is like all five of our plane tickets, which is 95% of the cost, um, has been funded by a, a fellow church down the road that had uh, a bunch of mission money that they didn't get to use since COVID. And they called and said, hey, I heard y'all do have a solid missions partner, can we fund, can we give you some money? And so they gave us 10 grand, and guess how much it cost to buy plane tickets for this crew? Right about 10 grand. So even that just gives me like courage and confidence to know that the Lord is going before us, that the Lord has us, and, and yeah, things are maybe, you know, a bit more dynamic than usual, but man, we trust that the Lord doesn't always call us into safety, but he calls us to be used for his glory, Amen. And so we take a lot of heart in that, and I hope that you'll continue praying and, and um, you know, take that same heart. And now as we shift into this sermon, I, there's, there's similar uh, just sovereignty of God to point to and see that, that God has our church 
um, on, his, on his mind. He's providing for us. He is looking ahead in our future. And so as we wrap up this series called Who is the Church? Um, I, I want to re- take your attention back to where, where Chad uh, started our series, and he said, hey, listen, this is a, a sermon series that we didn't plan after all the transition happened or began to happen, where I was transitioning out, and, and those of you that are new, like, I'm transitioning out as lead pastor and, and into just, you know, becoming a lay leader here at the church, and we're, we're announcing uh, today after church what those details are, who, you know, the, the next steps, but uh, we didn't plan this because we wanted to talk about the church in light of a transition for the church. We planned this months and months ago before I even knew that I would be tra- transitioning out. We just knew that in the fall, we wanted to take a moment and talk about what does the church look like and, and, and just how do, how do we function and those sorts of things. And then as things have progressed, uh, it's been beautiful to see that not only did we just install a couple of new elders a few weeks ago, uh, but now we are in the moment of, of transition. And so uh, God has had us in mind. And, and I think, again, I just want to, uh, you know, sort of encourage you to let that, um, you know, I hope that you're always ready to listen to the word of God. But even more so as you see that he's been sovereignly planning for us to be in this series at this very specific moment, which is really beautiful. And it makes, like, it really brings a lot of encouragement to me knowing that God has the, the future of our church in his hand. He is he's very divinely and sovereignly appointed even our sermon planning from months and months ago. So let's go uh, to Ephesians f- chapter 4. And we're going to look at, at the leadership of the church and how does that, like, we talked about who is the church. We talked about, you know, the kind of the history of God always working uh, as a, like, all of his redemptive work in history has always been with a people. There's always been a plurality to this, that we would be a people. And, um, and then, you know, that shifts, but it's still, like, it, it shifts in its nature, but in its function, and its, in its, you know, the fact that we're called to be a people is still true from Old Testament to New Testament. And so, uh, as, we, as we look at that, as we think about, being the people of God, um, we, we asked the questions like, who is the church? So we talked about, you know, being a people that are citizens of heaven under the king of Jesus, under the kingship of Jesus, right? That we are, uh, and then second week we talked about being um, reconciled not only to Jesus, but to one another, that we are called to be in community, to carry one another's burdens, to walk in life together in such a way that we love one another, and therefore we bring glory to God through our witness to the world as we live life together in community. Um, and then last week we talked about what does the church do, right? What, what, like if, you, if you're getting to know somebody, one of the quick questions you ask is like, what, what do you do, right? Like, and again, we don't want our identity to be in our work, but it is an interesting a question that helps you fill in the blanks about who a person is. And one of the other questions you might ask when you begin to learn about an organization or what do they do is like, who's in charge, right? Who's leading this deal? Whether that be a store and you want to know who the manager is, right? When you got beef or, or maybe you want to give a compliment, you should give more compliments as one who is, you know, uh, managed stores. Everybody has something to say when something goes wrong. Not everybody says, hey, the store looks great today. So just, just for what that's worth, um, maybe do that instead every, every now and then. Um, but you want to know like who's in charge. And so leadership of the church is a controversial issue in a lot of places. It is the very root of a lot of denominations it's being formed. It's the root of a lot of church splits. It can be the root of a lot of controversy. And yet I would submit to you that God has called us to something that is so different than the world. The way that the world looks at power and authority and, and those sorts of things and leadership uh, God has not called us to, to model our church and our life after the business world or the, just the world in general, but rather, as we saw last week, God has called his church to be a people that, that, that not just full of good works, but because of the way we live, chapter 3, verse 10, that, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Like, that's this task, that's this, the, the thing that God wants to do through his church is, is to preach the glory and the wisdom of God to the world. The world is trying. The world is always trying to get the more out of life that they can, right? They're always trying to get, get better, do better, feel better, all of those things. And, and, and Jesus says, hey, I'm calling you to a, a counterintuitive life where you think you're going to save your life, but the real way to save your life is to give it up, is to lose it. And when you give it up, when you lose your life for my sake, that's where you actually find life. He says, come and die, and there you will live. That's counterintuitive, right? That doesn't make sense to the world. And so as we think about that individually, following Jesus, 
corporately as we do that together, there is also an counterintuitiveness to the way that the people of God function that does so in a way that, that says to the world, oh man, there's something different about those people. Oh man, they seem to be operating differently. Like even the way that people, like even the way that the people of God like interact with authority outside of the church should speak differently. As we, uh, I don't know if y'all know, there's like elections and stuff happening. Big deal, all of that stuff, right? How we interact and respond in the midst of these like tense and culturally divided moments, how we interact and respond with politics should tell the world something about where our hope lies, amen? It should be something that brings glory to God. How we interact with authority should matter, right? People should see, oh, these people are appropriately engaged in politics when it matters, but their hope isn't on it, so they're not losing their ever-loving mind. Right? And, and so how the people of God interact with authority absolutely matters. It is not the primary way that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the world. That's through the preaching of the gospel. That's through the, the people of God proclaiming that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved by being better, trying harder, doing better, but rather we're saved by the completed, finished work of Jesus that we just celebrated at communion. That that's how we're saved, but because we're saved by that, we are then sent into the world to be his witnesses, and guess what? We are full of good works because we've been saved by a good Savior. We don't do good works in order to be saved, but because we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, we can't help ourselves but to make much of Jesus by being full of good works. That's what we looked at last week in Ephesians chapter 3, that the church is, is going to preach to the world, and even not just to the, the earthly world, but to the, it says to the, the rulers in heavenly places, the authorities in heavenly places, that the church is going to live such, the people of God live such radically transformed lives. That instead of chasing after power and money and comfort and fame, the people that have met Jesus seek after servanthood and generosity, right? And they don't shy away from suffering and they're willing to live lives of obscurity. And Paul says it's that way of life that preaches the glory of God to a confused people. Now, just to give you some more context about why power matters in that and leadership matters, because this whole conflict that we find ourselves in is in the context of a power struggle. You realize that, right? As we head to, if you keep going in Ephesians, you're going to get to chapter six, and Paul is going to remind us that we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but we struggle against the spiritual powers of authority, right? That there is a cosmic battle between good and evil, God and his enemy, that, that we find ourselves in the midst of, that that very much influences the, the things that we struggle with in life, right? It's, it, there's a cosmic reality, a spiritual reality behind all of that, and the root of that goes all the way back to a power struggle over leadership. If you know your, your, your bigger biblical history, it's, it's a bit more uh, implicit and you gotta do some digging in there, but what we learned from the Bible is that, that Satan, God's enemy, was originally one of God's angels. But rather than being in submission to God and, and bringing glory to God, Satan began to wish that he himself was God. And so he launched a, a mutiny through a coup in heaven trying to overthrow the king of kings, the lord of lords, and, and that resulted in this cosmic battle where Satan and, and fellow angels, which we would call demons, were, were cast out of heaven, and, and they have eternally waged war on God and all that he loves. And, and so that is very much the, the root and the context of which we find ourselves in this spiritual battle is this misunderstanding, this misplaced longing for uh, power and authority and leadership that gets abused and then we see that played out in all sorts of areas in, in the world, is how, what, how do we interact with leadership healthily? But, but God has for us something powerful that speaks about the gospel. It's not just that the gospel matters, and so we have to order the church in such a way so that we can keep preaching the gospel. It's that how we actually order the church, how we actually operate with one another, preaches the gospel. We don't just do things in such a way so that we can 
go out and, and knock on doors and do evangelism. We want to do that. But absolutely, by the way that we set up our church and governance in relation to one another, that in itself preaches the gospel. So let's, let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and, and, and this, is, this is New Testament. I want to give you the, I want to remind you of the bigger context. Chad started us out in the Old Testament, talking about how we've always been a people that were in submission to God as our king. We're citizens under the, the, the submission of the king, right? And, and, and there's some differences that happen in the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? As the, the salvation plan, as God's redemptive work shifts from being about a nation, right, that needed civil le- leadership. Right? The people of Israel, the, the, uh, God's people in the Old Testament, they needed actual civil leadership, governance, right? And so they had kings, they had, they had judges, and then they had kings, right? They had uh, prophets, and they had priests. So there were three offices that were primary to the, to the governance of God's people in the Old Testament. But as that shifts into the New Testament, it shifts from judges and kings, right? Judges that became kings, and then um, prophets and priests. It shifts to primarily pastors and deacons, but there is still order to God's church. There's still uh, a structure in which he calls us to interact with one another and for his people to be led by. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Much like last week, we are not going to exegete every verse of this passage. We're not going to be able to deep dive and unpack each piece and its implications. Rather, we're going to let the bigger uh, you know, the 16 verses that we're going to look at here, let it be a, a big picture of Jesus and his church and how he's called us to live with one another, and um, we'll make some observations and implications out of that. So uh, verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4 says, I therefore, this is Paul talking, and again, therefore, you always got to look and see what it's there for. So, like a couple of y'all real quiet. It's okay. When you see therefore, you got to look and see what it's, thank you, a couple, okay, it's all right. Y'all will learn. It's scripture, you can't just open and start reading. Like Context matters, right? And so when he's saying, I therefore, he's referring back to something he's previously said. In Ephesians chapter 3, he's just talked about what the church has been called to do, is to give themselves in such a way that they're full of good works, right? Um, and verse 20, so that, or verse 20 and 21, right, in chapter 3, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, right? A church context, this is a letter written to a church, to him, Jesus, be the glory, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen, right? And this is the same context that the church is called to preach the manifold wisdom. This is what, because the church has been given such a task, such, like the church is God's plan A for the redemptive work of the world. And as Pastor Darren used to say, there's no plan B. Right? He has called us to this work. So Paul says, I therefore, because of that, a prisoner of the Lord, right? Even though he's in and out of prison and he's, you know, he's given himself to the Lord. I, this guy, urge you, right? So this is the, the tone, the posture of Paul. It's urging because of what we've been called to, because of what God has for us in this work as his church, as Jesus' bride. Because of that, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul says, don't you dare get your sights set too low and start thinking that the church is about you. Start thinking that the church is about things less than it is. That's how you get infighting and disunity and nonsense that happens. Don't you dare start thinking that the church is about less than it is. Rather, I urge you to live a life, live lives, rather, that are, that are worthy, to walk in such a way that are, is worthy of the manner to which you've been called. With all humility, right? This is to the church with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so Paul is saying, don't mistake who you are as the church. You are the body of Christ. You are, and by the body of Christ, like we're called together to like to work together, but it's not just an inward work where we just, you know, make sure that we function as a, as a you know, an inward society, make sure we have enough money to do what we want to do, but rather to continue the work of Jesus, Right? Jesus came to, to, to earth. He started into motion this plan of redemption. 
with which he had to purchase, he had to conquer, he had to win. But he tells his disciples, I'm not done here. In fact, I'm just getting started. I'm going to launch this thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to absolutely finish the work of salvation so that God's people can be redeemed and brought to him. But I've got to go back to heaven so that I can send the helper. And he's going to empower you to continue the work. Right? And he's, he commissions his disciples. Hey, now he doesn't say, hey, glad I got to know you guys. I got to go up here and get some stuff ready for you in heaven. And I'll call you, I'll call you back just real soon. Just hang out and uh, preach and sing together. And we'll, we'll, we'll see you soon. No, he says, I'm going, and you're going to be my witnesses now in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in us, he's saying, the thing that I've started, you go and take it everywhere else. He says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I've taught you. Right? So this is the, this is the nature of what we've been called to. And, and so he's saying, listen, like, don't forget that this is who you are as the church, and there is absolutely one body, one spirit, right? So the body, yes, together, we, we have different roles. We'll look at that in just a moment. There's different passages that outline that some are called to be more of, of the mouth and the eyes, and others are called to be, you know, more the, the cartilage and the, 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 the ligaments, and, and there's different roles, absolutely. Some are more present, but the body can't function without each part of it. Right, And so that's absolutely what's in view here, but also that body has to have a purpose. We looked at that last week. and about We looked at how the, 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 some of the silliness that sometimes we see where we're just trying to exercise and, and, and squeeze in some things that, that make our body feel better because we're designed physically in our body to be active and to do work. But in our sedentary, sedentary culture, our bodies are starting to break down and push back against us because we're not made to sit still. Your body was made for a purpose. That's why we exercise and do these things. The, the body of Christ is also made for a purpose, has a work to do, right? We have to be about the good works that Jesus has called us to, making much of his name in our community, in our region, in our state, in our nation, and out to the ends of the earth, okay? That's why it's not just the O family's responsibility to minister to the people in their region. Right? It is the church's responsibility. Right? It is our responsibility collectively to make sure that they hear about Jesus. So we, we send them, we support them, we go visit them, and we are them. We are working with them to carry the, 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 the message in the kingdom of Jesus forward. So there's one body, there's one spirit, right? There's not, this denomination got this level of, of, you know, they got varsity spiritual gifts. There's one spirit, there's one body, and just as you were called to one hope, right? There's absolute unity here because we have one hope, we have one, one Savior, one Lord, right? One faith, one baptism, one God, and Father over all, right? So he's, he's reminding us of the unity that we experience in the gospel because it is all about Jesus. We're all under Jesus, and it's only through Jesus. We're all baptized in to Jesus. Verse 6, one God and one Father over all, <clears throat> of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so that's what he's saying. Who, who is the church? It's Jesus' people, right? And Jesus is in charge of all, right? Denominations, it, it all falls under Jesus. But grace, okay, so that's the, that's the corporate nature of it. But now he's going to shift to, okay, how does those dynamics work with different people? Because you know, oh, this, is, this can sound good. We're all together. We all have Jesus, but then we all are people we're all sinful, broken people. People have opinions. People put them on the internet. People open their mouths to other people, and it gets messy, right? We, 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 we don't have great unity. We don't operate together because we're fallen and we're broken, and we need. So, so now to the, the, the dynamics between one another. So, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is an incredible verse. He says, therefore, it says, and he's going to quote a verse from the Psalms talking about Jesus as the victor. And he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Okay, I'm going to read the next couple verses because it can be confusing. I'll try to explain it briefly and talk about the impact on our topic for today. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean? But he also, uh, had, he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended uh, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things.
things. Okay, so here's, here's the context. Paul is drawing on what they would have known as uh, a victorious return of a warrior king. Okay, and so in these ancient contexts, uh, kings would, would send out, would lead out in their armies, right? And they would go and, and they would either stand against opposing forces that were coming against them or they would go and conquer who God had called them to conquer. But they're out, they're, they're doing victory, and the, the people back home don't always know what's going on. Messengers would be brought back and forth. But the king is victorious, and now he's on his way to return. Right? And so uh, he may have prisoners from that war in tow, and he's going to be returning to the city. The whole city would get ready. They would send out a greeting party. They would go out of the city gates. They're going to open up the city gates. They've been on lockdown because they're under siege, right? But now they're going to open up the city gates, and they're going to go out and meet this king. And he's coming in, and they're going to throw a parade, and they're going to celebrate, and they're going to cheer because he has won. Okay, and sometimes he's bringing back the spoils of war, and he's handing out good gifts, and it's a, it's a celebratory day. And Paul is drawn on this imagery that David had wrote about in the Psalms and saying, this is our Jesus. When he ascended out of that grave, like when he came up out of that grave, right? How do we sing that song? There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness lay, and then bursting forth. In glorious day, up from, we got to sing that with more soul. Up from the grave he rose, right? Like there's victory in that. Christ is victor, like Jesus won. He's our king, he won, right? And so he resurrects out of the grave, and as a part of that victory, he ascends into heaven, and he's taken with him captives and demons and people he just conquered and squashed, like Jesus picked a fight on the cross, and he won, right? So that's the picture that Paul's painting. There's Jesus ascending into heaven. He's got everybody he needs to have in tow. He's going to do the business he needs to have, but guess what? In this picture, he's giving out gifts. So he's going to go on to say, it's the same Jesus Ascends into heaven is the one who descended into the earth, right? Why? Because he came to earth, but then he was also buried where we should have been buried, into the earth, right? And so it's that same Jesus buried into the earth and now being resurrected out of it and ascends into heaven. And as he's doing that, as that king is being victorious, he's handing out gifts, it's beautiful. And this is the scenery, this is the, the context. That, that Paul is saying, okay, those people that are coming out to, to greet the king, the people of the king, right? There ain't nobody else coming out to greet that victorious king. If you're not his people, you don't want to be around, right? But the people of the king, they, get, they begin to receive gifts, okay? And, and, and the gifts that he begins to give are gifts of leadership and order, right? Verse 11, and he gave the apostles and, and he gave the prophets and, and he gave them evangelists. So he's what he's talking about. What he gives to his people, this victorious king, he gives them apostles. Apostles are, 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 are the men who were commissioned by Jesus to lead and oversee the early church as it's beginning to form. They were also the ones who were they, were, they were personally commissioned by Jesus, called and commissioned and trained by Jesus, and they were given the authority to write the scriptures, right? So he gives them apostles, right? This is a gift. Jesus didn't have to give us a Bible, but he chose to, and he did that through the apostles. He didn't have to give us order and structure in the church, but he chose to, and he did that through the apostles, Right, But then he goes on, he gives the prophets, right? Prophets are people who confront sin, say, this is what the Lord has said, right? There's Old Testament prophets that are li like literally delivering the, the word from God because it's not been written yet, and they're telling the people, hey, thus saith the Lord, right? But then there's this ongoing, you know, there's some controversy about what the prophecy looks like today, but at the very least, it is people who are calling out and reminding, hey, thus saith the Lord, and applying God's word to specific context, calling God's people to repent. Prophets are, are, are people that kind of toe up when a group of people are in sin and need to be called to repentance. Prophets are the ones called to say, hey, knock it off, Right? God has called us to this, not that, right? And so he's given those sorts of folks. He's given evangelists, people who are simply going out and telling the good news of Jesus. They're messengers. They're, they're simply sent to make sure that they tell as many people as they can about Jesus. There's a specific role there. And 
and he gives to the shepherds and teachers. Okay, so now this is, this is where it's going to get super relevant for us as we talk about who is the church. It's because here he's, he's saying this is a gift that has been given, and this is the only place in the New Testament where really, where really the word pastor is used, and it's shepherd and teacher, and, and whether it's shepherds and teachers, or whether it's shepherds and teachers and they're together, or it, it, all of it is implying that there's, he's given to the people of God this specific person who is there to shepherd them, to oversee them, to protect them, to guide them, to lead them, but doing that, some level of that involves teaching. That the, one of the primary ways that the people of God are led and guided and shepherded is through teaching. And so this is where we, we get into, okay, what, what does it mean to be a church, and, and, and what are elders, and how do they interact with the people of God? And, and, and again, I can't unpack all of this, but here's, I, I want you to not miss this very next line. So he gives those offices, those people, those gifts to do this work. But what is, what is their role? Okay, I want you to not miss this. Verse 12, he's given them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all obtain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and, and deceitful schemes. Rather, people of God would be mature in speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way who, to him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow that the body, or that it builds itself up in love, okay? So again, I want to go right back to verse 12. He's given shepherds and teachers or pastors and staff, right? He's given them, why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, okay? So this is the biggest idea that I want you to take away from today's passage, is that the work of the church isn't to be done by the pastors and the paid staff. Rather, the work of the pastors and the paid staff is to equip the church for its work. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The work of the church is not to be done completely and totally by the pastors and the paid staff. Rather, the church pays the staff and pays pastors so that they can equip the people, the saints, the rest of the church to do the work that God has called us to do collectively. Okay? And it's important even to remember, like, the idea that, first of all, as we begin to talk about elders and pastors, is that we're, we're members first. We are members, we, we also have this work to do. Okay? So it is not that pastors and elders are called to just set, our, you know, set with our feet up or set high in authority and, and commission everybody else to do this work. No, we're absolutely called as, as a part of the, the members of these, this body to be a part of this work. But we have a specific calling to, to lead and to equip and to support and encourage and to make sure that the church itself is able to do the work that Jesus has called us to do. Now, this is a big shift in in, in a lot of cultural contexts, a lot of places, and part of our history, and we still have to fight against it, churches will gather, and the tendency is, let, let, like, let's make sure, let's pick a good pastor, let's pick a good worship leader, let's pick a good staff, so that we can come and enjoy the work that they do. It's a consumeristic mentality that has made its way into the church. Let's put somebody up there, you know, on stage or in the office, so that they can do the work, and we can feel good and be a part of it. Right? Again, this leads to some unhealth on a lot of sides. This leads to pastors being treated as commodities sometimes instead of people, instead of co-laborers, right? But, it, but on the other side, it can lead to pastors having some posture and some power where they, they begin to think, all oh, these people have gathered for me. Let me put on a show. Let me, let me make sure that, right, that, that I deliver the product that they're paying me to, to deliver, right? You see, the dynamics can get really, really tricky, but again, that's when, we let, that's when we slip into the, the, the ditch that the world has in its view of leadership and authority and organizational movement. But when we are called up into the body of Christ, we have a different dynamic 
that is put on display, right? A different uh, interaction between uh, leadership and authority that reflects the glory of God. To, to get the picture of this, I want to take us all the way back to creation, right? Because it has always been God's design that when he makes a people for a purpose, he gives them order and function. And you know where that comes from? Being made in his image, right? So if you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, God is making for himself a people, and he's saying, let us make man in our image, Right? So there's a plurality to God that we see right from the beginning. God is referring to himself in a plural sense. Right? And then he makes man, and it's the only thing that he says isn't good about his creation is that man is alone. And so he brings forth Eve. Now, I say this in every wedding, and you guys have heard me talk about it, but the word, the English word that's translated to describe Eve is, is unfortunate, and it's not the best. Because it's helper or help meet. And that sounds like a less than role. It sounds like Adam has been given the commission. Adam's been given the work to do. And, oh, he's going to need somebody to do, do, the, do the menial task. But that's the Hebrew word for help meet is Ezra Kenigdo. And it is a much more robust and beautiful and powerful picture of what God meant for the woman to be. Instead of mere helper, which sounds derogatory, it's actually sustainer, life giver, right? The, and it's hard to define because it's not used often in the scripture. The only other time it's used, it's used to refer to God himself, that God is our Ezra Kenigdo, that he's the one who shows up, that he's the one who sustains, he is the one who, who never leaves, right? This is the picture that God creates. He's given man this commission, fill the earth, subdue it, right? Make order out of chaos, go, this is a cultural mandate, mandate. go and, and make this world that I've created, bring it under your rule and dominion, and make culture, make humanity, be fruitful, multiply. This is the commission, but, but Adam can't do it alone, and so he's, he's given Eve, and, and together, they image God. But, but here's the deal. There's still order. Because Adam is called to be the head of the household, the head of the wife, and the head of the children, right? And so, okay, well, that gets tricky, right? And people get bristled up. They start talking about the man should be the head. But, but here's the deal. We're made in God's image. God is a God of plurality. It's God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in that Trinitarian dynamic, there is absolutely equality, Okay? God the Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. It's not like gold, silver, bronze. Okay, they are equal in value and worth and authority. And yet, there is deference and submission. We've already seen in, in the Gospel of John that we've been in before pausing for this series that Jesus regularly reminds people that he is in full submission to whatever his Father wants to do. That he doesn't act on his own authority, but is doing exactly what his Father in heaven has called him to do. And the Holy Spirit doesn't rush in and take over, but rather waits for Jesus to accomplish his purpose and then comes alongside to continue to make much of Jesus, right? So in the Trinity, there is absolutely equality, but there's also deference and submission. And in our homes, right, there is equality, man and woman. There is not one that is better than the other, but there is absolutely uh, leadership and submission, but the context matters so much because the reason get, people get bristled up about that beyond just the cursing that God called and said that it would be difficult from now on, but is because oftentimes that's used to, for power and for abuse, that men have taken their role as head and used it to, to suppress the gifts, the beauty, the, the, the glory of women and hold it over them, to lord it over them. And that's not how God has called us to live out leadership in his image. But rather, we're, we're told in Ephesians 5, right, that husbands are to love their wives the way that Christ loved the church. And Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. Sacrificial leadership. You don't think Christ could have just called down from his throne and put us in line and told us what we deserve and gave us a commission and told us to do the work? Of course he could have. But he doesn't love us that way. He loves us by stepping off his throne. And he says, I've not come to be served. 
This is the king of kings, y'all, that put the whole world together. He says, I didn't come to be served, but rather to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. That's how men are called to lead their, husband, lead their wives and their, and their families. Not to be served, but to give themselves in service. Yes, they are accountable for the family. Yes, they are given the task of leading, but it is absolutely in the context of sacrificial giving of themselves, right? And so in the church, there's order as well because the church is, A, it's the household of God. It's the language of the New Testament. But as Caleb pointed out so beautifully in the second week of this series, we're also the bride of Christ. Because Paul takes that passage in Ephesians 5 where he talks about how husbands should love their wives, and he says, hey, listen, I'm talking about a mystery, and it's actually about Jesus and his church. That, that together, like, we're Jesus' bride, and therefore, these extensions of how he's made the world for us to be under his authority, ultimately, he's the ultimate head, but in mutual submission to one another, as God gives roles and positions, we submit to and honor Jesus by submitting to and honoring one another, that extends into the household of God. That extends into this relationship that we have as a church. And so we're absolutely called to, to carry this out in our dynamics with authority and submission in the church. So, yes, God has given positions of, of leadership, just like he, he gave Adam and Eve a purpose and work to do. Now he's given the church a purpose and a work to do. And he's going to give overseers. He's going to give those that will be accountable for the health of that church, for the maturing of that church, for the growing up of that church, for the care and concern and formation of that church. He's going to give people into positions. And this is what he says. This is the context. It's a gift. Out of, out of his grace, by grace we were given. Right? Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ in verse 7. Right, that this victorious king, as he's ascending into heaven and commissioning his church to do this work, he says, I've got gifts for you. And they are these roles. So that should give you an idea of how leadership in the church is supposed to function. It's supposed to be a gift to the people for the people's good. Right? So this... I want that to fill in the dynamic. I want that to be the big picture here, right, that God gave as gifts the structure and leadership to the church, a people with a purpose. The work of the church isn't to be done by the pastors and the staff. Rather, the work of the pastors and the staff is to equip the church for the work. That's the big idea. That's what I want you to get. Now, the interactions that, that, that carry out from there, they, they, uh, they do bear some explanation. They can be confusing. And so I want to take just a bit and talk a little bit about how does the church set up this leadership and how do we try to function and leave this out, okay? So first, I want you to hear that this idea in the scriptures is, is who's overseeing the church is the elders. And there's different words that are used in the New Testament, elder, bishop, overseer, uh, shepherd, and, and we believe those are all used um, Somewhat interchangeably, let me just read a quote to you from, um, from, from John Piper because he's, he's smarter than me. Um, and he says this, the New Testament only refers to the office of pastor one time, and it's in the verse we just read, Ephesians 4.11. It's a functional description of the role of elder that is stressing the care and the feeding of the church as God's flock. Okay, so what he's saying is there's only one time where it talks about pastor specifically, and it's right here. And, and it's a functional description of a specific role that God is, is going to give to some in his church to preach and teach, right? But he goes on to say, just as bishop slash overseer is a functional description of the role of elder, stressing that governing or oversight of the church. And so, okay, so elders are called, overseers are called to, to govern the church, to, to make policy where needed, to oversee, to, to make determinations on sin and church discipline and, and the direction of the church, purchases, all those sorts of things. Somebody's accountable for basically, it's not a, a great word, it's not a biblical word, but for the management of the church. There's, a, there's some functional management that has to happen, and God is going to call qualified men into that role. Right, And so that's, that's pastor, elder, like bishop, overseer. Like those are interchangeable words that the New Testament refers to the same office. Right, This office stands alongside deacon. Um, 
in Philippians 1, right? And, and it's such a way to show, like, there's two abiding officers instituted in the New Testament. That's elder and deacons. I'll, I'm, I'll just say briefly. Here at the church, uh, we do not yet have an um, official diaconate or body of deacons. Uh, it's not because we are opposed to them. It's because we are a fairly new church. It wasn't... Um, I think there was some cultural work to need to be done because there are some churches in, in our region and in context such of ours, a Bible Belt, that, that have some confusion about the role between deacon and elder. And they have a lot of churches that, that have deacon boards, deacon bodies that function more like elders, but they're called deacons. And so I think it served us well to have a season of separating that. And also, we've just been kind of building the church, but I think in the near future, we will, uh, you know, I say we, I'm a lame duck pastor, I don't know what y'all will do, but, um, you know, in the near future, I think it makes sense for the church to move toward an establishment of a deacon body, right, where there are people who are specifically appointed to oversee the needs of the church, and that's how deacons came to be. There's a story in Acts chapter 6 where uh, they're, uh, you know, the, the church is growing and people, they're trying to meet everybody's needs and, and they're pulling away the leaders and leaders are going, hey, we got to preach and teach like th- and pray. This is our primary role. If we stop and do this, we won't preach and teach and the teaching and the formation will suffer. And so y'all got to appoint some people amongst yourself to oversee that. And that's how deacons come to be. And so uh, Pastor Darren used to say, I think it's helpful that, that, past, that, that elders le- uh, serve the church by leading, but deacons lead the church by serving. And I'll say that again. I think it's helpful. It's not straight from Scripture, but I think it's biblical. That elders serve the church by leading, and deacons lead the church by serving. Okay, We have many people operating in deacon capacity at this church. I could name them. I could celebrate them, and it's beautiful. They just haven't been officially called into, trained, and, and you know, ordained into that role but I think that's in our future. So we won't talk a ton about that, and, and Ephesians 4 doesn't really talk a ton about that, and so we're going to we'll leave that where it is. But what I want to bring you back to is this quote from, from Piper saying that, yeah, the, the Bible's going to talk about overseers, bishops, elders, and, and we believe that's, that's referring to the same office, but sometimes those, those terms are helpful to emphasize the specific task of different men in that office. Okay, so here at The Journey, we have a, a body of elders. We have, in, in, you know, legally a board even of elders, although we don't call ourselves that functionally. But there, we have in our bylaws that there needs to be a plus one majority of lay elders, meaning there should be more of the people uh, serving the church as overseer that don't get a paycheck from the church than those that do. So a plus one majority of volunteer or lay elders is how our church is governed and led. Okay, so we have, I think, five now, uh, lay elders and two staff elders. Okay, uh, so there always needs to be one more lay than, than staff. So that, that's how we are set up to govern. However, how do we function? We want to function in a way that isn't just the elders rule and y'all deal with it. Elders rule and people drool. That's not how we're going to operate. That's not our MO. Now, listen, there's, on the other side of that, there's congregationalist churches that vote on everything. Right? The church is completely democratic in, in, the, in the sense that it votes on everything. How does the journey do this? Well, we want to be elder-led, but member-engaged. Elder-led, but member-engaged. Those of you who are members, I hope, I feel confident that you've seen this in action even in the, in the last few weeks. Because while the elders have been the ones doing the interviewing and and narrowing down candidates, as we've put candidates before you and considered options, we have been soliciting feedback, not only asking you in email saying, hey, we want to hear from you, but also our elders have been calling um, community group leaders and key leaders and saying, what are you hearing? What are you feeling? And and listen, we've gone through stages and and different candidates. It's easiest to illustrate this in terms of uh, staff hires, but this happens when we're talking about buying our building, right? Becoming autonomous from St. Louis. A lot of things in our history, we have paused and got input from our body because we, we value it and we don't intend to go forward without it. And so we have had candidates that we were actually pretty close to hiring. We brought them before you and you guys are like, mm, I don't know. And so we went a different direction. And so that's how we try to be elder led, but member engaged. Okay. The members absolutely have a voice. You have a voice in who becomes elders, Right? And as Mark Dever said, uh, the, the members ultimately hold the, the, the final authority because you can vote with your feet and with your wallet. 
right? Because you can lead. And then we ain't got, it doesn't matter if we think we were right or not, we ain't got nobody to lead. Now, that authority that you hold as a church body is real. Okay? It's real. Just take, for instance, the evidence of the fact that the, almost the entire New Testament is addressed to the church, not to its elders and leaders. There's two exceptions. Third John and Philemon, you get First and Second Timothy and Titus are addressed to an individual, but there's a plural sense. It's meant to be read in, in, in the, the, the full church. And so Ephesians is addressed to a church, not just to its leaders. So that matters. The church absolutely has authority. And I, and I said, you really ultimate authority. Not only are we engaging with you, but if, if you decide to bounce, then there's power in that. If you decide to leave, there's power in that. You decide to stop giving, there's power in that. However, that is also not to be used in an abusive manner. How many of you have been in churches where people have threatened to withhold tithes if the, if the pastor and the staff don't do what they've been told to do? I hope not many of you, but unfortunately I have. That happens. It's wielded as a weapon. That's not how God's people are supposed to treat one another. That's not how people are supposed to treat their pastors. And, um, and so I want to read to you um, sort of this, this dynamic uh, that's, de- that's described. And uh, David Mathis and, and John Piper have both been, been helpful for me as I studied this week in, in putting um, language to this dynamic that exists between the authority in the church and the people. Um, and so he talks about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So there's, a, there's an acknowledgement that there are people who are over them in leadership, and they are to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So their leaders are over them in the Lord. Paul calls them to respect those leaders and to esteem them very highly. Yet, in the same breath, these leaders are those who labor among you, right? They're not sitting back in the, uh, with their feet up giving directives to the church to serve their comforts and conveniences. Rather, they are laboring, they are working, they are giving of themselves, expending energy and focus and time for the, for the church's good. And so the church should esteem them because of their work, not just because of their title, but because of their work. This takes us back a bit to the, to the role of husband and wife at home, right? When it's presented as power and submission, this gets misunderstood. But the church, the people of the church absolutely matter. As I said, it's not a less than. It's not that elders are more valuable, more powerful than, than the, the rest of the people. They absolutely matter, just like the wife in the relationship is absolutely of significant value. As I said, most of the New Testament is addressed to that. So as in marriage... The pastors gladly embrace, this is from David Mathis, a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead. Okay? So this is not a let me in there. Let me, let people, you know, First Timothy warns against people who are trying to use godliness for their own gain and fame or in money. But rather, this benevolent responsibility to lead, to provide, and to protect the congregation. Okay? The man is called in, in Genesis 1 and 2, to provide and protect. Men are called in the New Testament church, specifically the office of elder, to provide and protect the congregation. And the people have a freeing disposition to affirm, to receive, and to nurture strength and leadership from worthy elders. Right? Peter would exhort the elders not to lead out of compulsion, not to, you know, be abusive to people, but Peter and Hebrews would talk about to the people, hey, don't make, don't, like, don't make their job hard, right? Like, uh, submit to them in all joy. Like, make, like there should be this, as he, as he says, a freeing disposition to affirm and receive and, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy elders. The people want to be led by worthy leaders, and the leaders want to put in extra energy and work to care for the people and serve them, not use them. Okay, I want to read that again. The people want to be led by worthy leaders, and the leaders want to put in extra energy and work to care for the people and serve them, not use them. This is the kind of dynamic 
that reveals the manifold wisdom of God to the spiritual powers of the world. When you have people with leadership and influence that are leading through serving and giving and not using anybody but rather caring for them, pouring out their lives for them, then you have a people who are eager to be led by them. Let me tell you this just about the home and back to the husband and wife. Before you get up in arms about what that means, I promise you, if your husband were to embody what he's being called to in Ephesians 5, then that would create a a longing to be led by that kind of man. And the same should be true of the church. When our elders embody that kind of leadership of giving and self-sacrifice and pouring themselves out, laboring with the church, then it creates an eager body ready to submit and be led and formed and protected by these elders, right? So, yeah, we have elders who, some are, all of them need to be able to teach. All of them need to be able to unpack the word of God. But not all are gifted with preaching and teaching in the same capacity, So we have elders who are there. Some churches would call them ruling elders, shepherding elders. You're not going to see them on stage opening the Bible a ton. If they need to, they can. But you're going to have others that are paid staff that are called to labor in, right? First Timothy says, hey, like those who who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. Right? Don't muzzle the ox while you're treading out the game. You, you need somebody that is dedicated to the preaching and teaching of God's word for the formation and the commission of God's people. That's how the New Testament is set up. There are people who, whose job needs to be preaching, teaching, and praying. Okay, That's what you see in Acts 6. They're like, hey, we can't leave our primary responsibility to go serve tables. Somebody needs to serve the tables. It's important. But if I leave this, the church will fall apart. People might get fed, but doctrine will, will not get taught. So you need somebody that is dedicated to that, and that's why we, we pay pastors. That's why we have staff pastors, and they are dedicated to that role. But they serve among the body of elders who are there to rule. They, they serve as a part of that, right? So elder-led, member-engaged, we've got, we, like, just, it's helpful for our language that oftentimes, you know, Chad and I are called pastors. Micah, Rob, Adam, Jacob, and Josie are called elders, and then there are times when we, Chad and I are also called elders, and, and it's just a helpful way to describe the work, the specific work we're called to, but we are all elders, we are all shepherds, we're all overseers. Some of us are specifically called to be in the role of, of teaching. Now, there is room for slight disagreements and nuances in this. This is how the journey sets up and operates, and we want to humbly do so in a way that points to Jesus, and this is how we want to call us to respond. Again, the church is not meant to model after the business world. So I want to, I want to read that definition to you again, and I want you to think about your role in it, whether you're a pastor, whether you're uh, a member. And I want us in this, in this shift, in this season of, of leadership transition here at The Journey, let's submit ourselves to the Lord. He's the head overall. Who's the head of the church? It's Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate, the senior pastor. He's the one. He's called under shepherds to lead his people. So as we move forward, let's let's posture ourselves to embody this gospel message in our interactions with one another. May all of us have a submission to Jesus with a posture of his will be done and his glory be the focus of our church. Following that, may we be a people eager to be led by the men that God has called to serve in that role. And may those leaders, our elder team, be encouraged to live up to the calling and to give ourselves to the providing, protecting, equipping, and leading of Jesus' church. Let's pray. God, there's so much. Uh, it's more than a sermon can, a single sermon can, can do uh, to unpack the beauty of what you've called us to as your church and how that operates, and the beauty of authority and self-sacrificing leadership and, and mutual submission to one another, all of it is, is more than we can unpack in just today. And yet, it is such a part of what proclaims your, your glory and your beauty to the world. And so may, may we be a people here at The Journey 
that bring glory to your name by how we interact with one another and how we submit to your leadership, those that you've called to be in authority over us. Jesus, have your way in this place. We submit to you in the present, looking forward to our future. We submit to you. We're your people. Foolish of us to think of anything less than that. One body, one faith, one baptism, one Lord over all. That's you, Jesus. Come, have your way. In Jesus' name.